Discovery is one of South Africa's most recognizable and iconic companies. Discovery is a global success story and with the Vitality program, it has one of the most distinctive concepts to come out of South Africa. Discovery co-founder Barry Swartzberg is now the current CEO of Vitality Group. This is The Healthy Business Show. I'm your host, Fred Rode, and in this episode, I'm excited to ask Barry about the early days, starting the business, the challenges and pitfalls that he experienced, and what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Welcome to the show, Barry. It's an honor to have you. Fred, thanks for having me on. I want to talk about the discovery, vitality, symbiosis, and just having watched how the company has grown it has to be one of the most elegant business ideas that has actually come out of this country because it, it almost feels like the iPod, iTunes ecosystem and the way they work together and the way they kind of feed off each other. And uh, I want to know the original idea. How, was it like a, a shower moment? How was it formed? Did you kind of just stop your car and suddenly you start scribbling on a, on a piece of paper? Where did it come from? Or was it something that emerged over time so there were you know a series of events that led to it, it wasn't like a once-off inspiration although there was inspiration along the way many moments of inspiration but it sure. wasn't a once-off kind of event so maybe i go a little bit to the start of the evolution of this thing and then um and then give you a bit of a history and how we got there yes so like most, I suppose, good innovations around the world, it's caused by a need, a massive need that you come up with something innovative. Okay, so there's an itch that needs to be scratched. Yes, right? and, and uh, you know, something that needs to be resolved. Uh, and in South Africa, what you have in, certainly when we start out in health insurance, you have uh, undersupply of doctors. Just, that's just the fact of the matter. So in most insurance markets, health insurance markets around the world, Health insurers make a market out of doctors. There's an oversupply of doctors. And in order to create a market, they choose certain providers and they get deep discounts by giving them volume. So you push volume to certain doctors and you get a massive discount. You can't do that kind of thing in South Africa. So you mm -hmm. can't have classic medical management or classic health insurance in South Africa because there's just too few doctors, too few hospitals, etc. When we started out the business, we were kind of forced to focus on demand for healthcare. So to try and keep people out of hospital, out of the doctor's office. So we always focused on prevention as opposed to curative care. Okay. It was kind of forced by the environment. We just, it was naturally when we went into health insurance, we started out, we focused on keeping people healthy. So we always focused on the consumer. We always focused on the client. We are client centric. So our very first innovation was around that. It was called medical savings accounts. Yes. So the client had to look after their own money for day-to-day -day medical expenses, and the insurance only kicked in when you really needed it for a real insurable event. Sure. But the person was focused on the medical savings account, on prevention, on being prudent about spending their own money. So that was the first sort of thing that we did, or first innovation, first step towards this behavior type of idea was focusing on the client. That's number one. Number two is after several years of this, it became very successful. Medical savings account became successful in South Africa. When was this? Sorry. So R like roughly. the mid-1990s. Vitality hadn't come into formation at that point. No. We've Had you thought of it yet? Or? No. We were completely okay. focused on selling health insurance with medical savings accounts. 
and it was hugely innovative. Nobody else was doing it at that stage. No, and we were one of the first worldwide to do it. We'd learned about it from ideas out of America, but they hadn't actually implemented it in significant scale. I think that was like in 1992, 93. In 1997, a couple of things happened. Remember Clive Will? Yes. He was representing Health and Racket Club. And they were looking for Health and Racket Club to sell health insurance, medical aid, by their salespeople. They're busy selling the gym. Why don't they sell health insurance at the same time? So they approached us about this idea. Can we sell health insurance in the gyms? So we thought about that idea and said, no, no, why don't we sell gyms to our health insurance clients, yeah. turn it around? There was a natural conversation that just emerged out of the kind of organic interactions that you had, right? Correct. So, yes, yeah, so we were looking to distribute our products and all that type of thing. And then Adrian came up with this idea of, he called it like a health bank. Why can't a person bank their health in some way? Mm. Get points for banking health. And that, in combination of the discussions with Health and Record, came up with this idea of a wellness program or a prevention program. And it naturally fitted in with medical savings accounts. That was the next evolution of creating vitality. First of all, then offering access to Health and Record Club through this program. We called it vitality and was initially just genuinely access to the Health and Record Club. Mm. And we did it on a capitation basis. That means we charged everyone a flat fee. Everyone paid the flat fee through their Vitality mm. membership, and then they had access to the gyms. And then it took off. Vitality. It just evolved. And yeah. and I remember the first time I saw it was when I saw, okay, you can get Stokinicor movie tickets and that sort of stuff, right? And I was like, wow, yes, I want that. Yeah, so I mean, started out with the gyms, and then we started every year. We have this thing that every year we've got to come up with new ideas on our products, sure. our full range of products, no matter which business we're in try and come up with new ideas. So vitality became phenomenal. This concept around yeah. prevention, around going to the well, gym. It became like a holistic approach to health, including entertainment and getting away and, and escaping and, and really kind of living a, a full life as opposed to just work all the time, yeah? Correct. So, yes, exactly. And rewarding you for that. Yeah, so we came up with this whole idea and we, we, we put a proper construct around vitality that it became this wellness program, know your health, improve your health, get rewarded. And then on each aspect underlying that construct or that product, we came up with innovative ideas. So like in rewards, it was, you know, access to movies or flights. Yeah. Or, and the thing started evolving, earning points and getting a status. So that was the first couple of years on this thing. And it was it, the imagination. was it immediate, the response to Vitality? Did you know, people immediately take it on board, or was it a slow burn? I mean, how was that original take-up? Well, we were giving access to the gyms at such discounted rates to a whole number of people. Uh, Who were already going to or wanted to go to the gym, Yeah, right? had, had inclination to go to the gym, wanted to exercise, and we were giving them the access at a discounted rate. Capture the imagination. People just came in in droves. I mean, we started sending a lot of medical plans together with Vitality as a combination. Can you talk to the first couple of years? What did that feel like? I mean, it was just you and Adrian in the beginning, and you got proper funding for or support from RMB Correct. and uh, 
you pretty much hit the ground running. How how was that experience? That first say the first year. What what did that feel like? Well, we've been doing it for. 30 years now, it feels like it's still today for me. Though. Really? Yeah. I'm in that That's mode. amazing. Okay. I'm in that startup mode every day today, you know, reliving. That excitement. Startup. Yeah, okay. the excitement. So in the early years, both Adrian and I worked at Liberty Life. Liberty Life was an equally dynamic business, sure. innovative, entrepreneurial. And we worked in the most entrepreneurial part of it, which is product development. So we were developing new products for Liberty Life. So we got the sense of understanding the full gambit of running an insurance company from you know developing the products and how that led to the sales and the administration and ultimately the profitability of the organization it really started at product development and creating the right product for the market and i think our evolution at discovery has been similarly focused on product and getting the right product and the right construct i mean even if you come today 30 years later to our executive committee meetings or any meetings that we have I'd say the majority, the lion's share of any meeting is still today discussing product. Mm. We're always innovating about product, new ideas, and how to construct the right types of products. So we got that experience in those early days out of Liberty Life, and we created some great products at Liberty that were very, very successful. Sure. So it gave us that confidence to say, ultimately, you know, once you're creating the product and you understand how to create that product, it became a natural thing on where well, we think we can manage the entire entity and create some business that is iconic. You know, that's ultimately what we wanted, a business that's iconic. And So you started out with that intention to create this iconic business. Oh, I yes. Think, okay. We always had the vision of business based on good principles and values sure. with a great vision that people can aspire to, that's, you know, run ethically. We always wanted to be part of a large business and – Use that to create products that people actually desire. Was it tough in the beginning? Those first years, was it particularly challenging? I mean, it, from the outside looking in, it sounds like you guys just rocked it straight up. But <laughs> no, I mean, look, any any startup uh, takes years to build yeah. a great business. So, did you, you know, find it taxing? I mean, were you guys working hundred hour weeks, or you you know oh, chilling on Fridays? No, no, I mean, no. So when we started out, Rand Merchant Bank had this dormant life insurance license that they had got when. Guy owned the license, uh, owed the money and went in, and they, they landed up with this license. It was called Magnum National Employers. Okay. And they had this license, and they didn't know what to do with it, and they were looking around for ideas. We knew a person working at Rare Merchant Bank, a guy by the name of Theo Duchen, and he said to us, listen, they've got this license, and they're looking for ideas. So Adrian and I approached Rare Merchant Bank and Larry Dippenau, and we discussed what to do with the license. I was in the early meetings, but then Adrian actually went about a year later with the idea of starting Discovery. And did you propose it with the medical savings account package in, actually, in that did, proposal? Or? No, we didn't have the idea right there and then. Actually, we started out with a life insurance company. We wanted to start a life insurance company. If you look at the logo of Rare Merchant Bank, they've got keys in it. So we wanted to call it Key Life. Okay. That was the initial idea. It was around life insurance. But they, they were, I suppose they were impressed with the, the individuals and the people that we wanted to build this iconic business that had values. They were more interested in that, I think, and I suppose us as entrepreneurs. The savings account and focusing on health insurance only came when we started working. But coming back to it, Adrian then ultimately put the idea to Lowry, accepted it. Yeah. Uh, there was already money inside Magnum National Employers that had 
I think in total there was 5 million rand worth of share capital in Magnum National Employers, and they topped it up with another 5 million. Okay. And that's how we started. And Magnum National Employers was close to new business. Our very first job, day one, was to open it and back it up to new business, and which we did. There were like 25,000 dormant policies that they were looking after. One person ran this business, this company, 25,000 <laughs> policies. So we started working on the new products. And when we started out, kind of the third or fourth week, maybe the first month after we started out, there was the Boy Patong Massacre. In, uh, which remember, was yeah. in, the, in 1992, which was horrific. I mean, the entire country was depressed. It was really tough times. And now you had these two individuals, entrepreneurs, <laughs> sitting in, in Santon thinking about starting a health insurance company for South Africa, a new company in very, very tough and sure. trying times. One of our most tough and trying times, yes. yeah. And we just kept focused on, you know, let's build. It's, you know, everyone, I remember talking to people, they want to get out of the country. It's really, really di- going to be difficult. There's potential for civil war and all these kinds sure. of things. Everybody's stockpiling. Yeah, the there's a lot of discussion around that. And we said, you know what? This is the time we're going to build. This is the time we're actually going to do it. So there were scary times. You know, you're often coming to work. Are we doing the right thing? Obviously, you question yourself, but we went for it. That's still a relevant lesson for today, I think. I mean, in terms of so many people just struggle with the macro circumstances. Say you can't start a business in this environment and there's too much instability and so on. But um, what I'm hearing from you is that as long as you got that hearse and that passion and that focus and the idea and the people, I suppose, there's no better time than now. Correct. And it's um, now and now and now. So it's always now, but with those combination of factors, yeah? Yeah. I mean, as opposed to when it's flying and highly competitive. Sure, <laughs> sure. You know, when other people are worried and if you're positive and building, I think that's when you create the most value. So where there's challenges, there's opportunities, right? Yeah. That's a very Silicon Valley <laughs> viewpoint or perspective, I suppose. So then, And then when we started the business, there were many, many challenges. I mean, we started out, I remember we had this product. We started selling and wouldn't sell. I mean, our first client was Ram Merchant Bank, their staff. I suppose that was an easy client that owned us. Yeah, right? <laughs> but you will after, take these policies. Yeah, after that, we, I'll never forget, we got stuck on 1,800 sales. You couldn't move the needle. So how long a period was that? I mean, So that must have been for like six months to a year. We were st- I'll never forget, there were four of us who really started the business. Myself, Adrian, a guy called Stuart White and John Robertson. Those okay. were the four. Stuart White, we knew from Liberty Life. He was the best operations guy we knew at Liberty Life. So we called him up one day and said, you know, come along on, on board. And we're talking to Stuart. We used to often ask Stuart, so how many policies have we got? He said, 1,800. Come back, you know, two or three months' time. We're working, we're selling, <laughs> we're out there. And Stuart, how many policies have we got? 1,800. <laughs> oh, so, no. so That's got to be demoralizing. Yeah, and then I'll, I'll never forget we had these people on the board and we said, we said how do we sell? Awesome to buy. And, you know, there was just a yeah. whole all range lead. of different sales tactics. And I mean, Adrian and I were on the road constantly. So the two of you were actually driving all the sales and just beating the streets, yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, Adrian specifically, he was out there selling all the time, all the time. So how did that feel? Was that demoralizing for you? I mean, was it was it challenging? Did you guys think, flip, this might not work? Well, there was always receptivity to the idea, right? Okay. People loved the idea. It wasn't like you'd walk in there and think, oh, these guys are idiots. This idea can never work. <laughs> they loved the idea. They just weren't buying. So it was 
how to convert from intellectually liking the idea to going mm, into the heart actual action, yeah. to make the sale. Yeah, we started selling through brokers. Yes. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. the marketing of it was very good. We had brought out the father of medical savings accounts, a guy by the name of John Goodman, and his co-author John Musgrove wrote this book called Patient Power. And we, we built a lot of our business on this idea of patient power, putting the patient in control. And we brought John Goodman out when we launched the business and talked about savings accounts. We filled out the room with brokers. Marketing-wise. When you say you brought him out from internationally to… Yes, he's, uh, he's, he was based in the U.S. Okay. okay. So, as I said, the marketing of it and intellectually people got it, but we just couldn't move forward. And then one day, I'll never forget this, I think it was 15 months or so after we opened the doors, one of the brokers walked in and he had sold Nashua for us. That was our first big external client, <laughs> Nashua. So they came in, yeah. And he just like, he delivered it to us. And then it just took off. So that kind of set the ball rolling. Set the ball rolling. And then we knew once we could sell this constantly, then the, nothing could stop us. That's, I think for most entrepreneurs in my mind, you've got to get to that point there's, where mm. there's sales happening. Yeah. Then you can scale, you know? Yeah. You need to see that traction. And I've spoken to many entrepreneurs around this. There's no better feeling when you see people buying and using your product it feels like such a satisfying validation of what your all your work has been about when they make that decision and, and sign in the line that is dotted right yeah and then it actually works when they yeah, buy yeah it, yeah know? hopefully hopefully yeah. <laughs> yes so if we look at ideas and there's so many things to talk about i mean the fact that you know rmb looked at you and adrian as people and want to invest in your characters and personalities so you had a strong team, obviously, but I think it feels like from the outside in that people think of discovery. It was this great idea. You put it in the water and it just sailed, you know, but it seems like it's not like that. It's a little bit more messy and meandering and it kind of had these various milestones along the way. Ideas are cheap, right? But it's the execution that's not. And so can you talk into that process of execution? How challenging was it? Did you need that team in place? How did you motivate the team? And how did you get that chip going, I guess? I think a lot of people make the classic error that uh, they stick with the initial idea. I think in concept, the high-level idea should remain the vision, etc. Sure. But you've got to operate quickly. In my mind, that is the key thing. You launch the product and you see what's happening in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You get feedback from the marketplace. You got to react. React exceedingly quickly. You know, and we had multiple times where we changed. You would come back from, you know, sales pitch or whatever, and we think, yeah, this thing doesn't make sense. This piece of the product doesn't make sense. We're going to change it tonight. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow morning it's different. And we did that. First of all, it takes years and years and years to build a great business. Sure. You never, ever have an overnight sensation. I just don't believe that exists. I agree, yeah. And it just takes years and years. And I think you need that ability to rapidly change and innovate. And I, I think you, obviously you're going to keep the vision the same. The direction the needs direction to be the same. The same and what yeah. you're trying to achieve needs to be the same. But if elements But you can course it, correct along the way, right? Yes. And yeah. I, I, I find that's a lot of people just – bash the heads against the wall, trying the same thing. If it's not working, you've got to change. You've got to pivot quickly. Mm. And you're not changing who you are. You're not changing what you're trying to achieve. You're changing elements for it so that it fits in. It's like trying to solve the puzzle. Sure. For me, that's the exciting part. You launch the product and you see, 
well, how does it play out? You start to get the data, the feed, you, you get your feedback, and then you can respond to that feedback. Yeah, and right? it could be multiple things, you know, sure. whether it's branding or marketing or the product or the operational aspects. You keep on shining this thing all the time. You should never, ever let it go. I can't see a product, you just let it go and it sells and you're ultimately going to be taken over by your competition. You're not yeah. going to be able to make sales. Your clients aren't going to be happy. So in my mind, the iteration is so key. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, certainly that I've seen at Heavy Chef and the work that we've done with you know thousands of entrepreneurs, I think there's a lot of people, and I suppose this is probably a thing that's prevalent across the globe, they fall in love with the idea and they just stick to it and they just keep bashing their heads not realizing that they have to change, right? Yeah. And it's really refreshing to hear your story because it looks like this overnight success, but it clearly wasn't. And I think there must have been a time when you realized, okay, we've course corrected enough time. Was there a time when you suddenly realized, okay, we've got this balance right. We've got a formula that's really working. When was that and what did that feel like? So as I said, you know, when uh, about 18 months after or 15 months after we started, when we started landing bigger deals, then we knew. So after the Nasher deal, you knew that you'd kind of got the the formula right. When a person walked in and just handed us the business, became a slightly easier sell, wasn't just out there pushing the sales, et cetera, was kind of natural. I think when your model is well-defined, when it's smooth, when people are accepting and buying naturally, that's when scale should That's come when in. you really need to turn on the accelerator. Absolutely. That's when you put your foot flat in the gas and expand as fast as possible. Did you seek funding at that time? How did you scale when you knew that there was an opportunity here and that you'd got that formula right? Look, I mean, when we started out, our first year losses were minimal. We made a 2.7 million rand loss in the first year and a two point, it was the same number as 2.7 million rand loss in the second year. So of the okay. 10 million, we never ever spent the full 10 million. We spent about 5 million rand of it. In the third year, we started making profits. Mm. So with growth and with capital requirements and all that, it wasn't sufficient to generate sufficient capital within the business. Sure. We always raised capital thereafter through rights issues, listed into the market. We have obviously leveraged our balance sheet to a certain extent, but not significantly. Okay. In my mind, I think an important part of our startup is you've got to keep your downside low. Yeah. You've got to minimize your downside until you find that success, until you've worked out the puzzle. You know, mm. I think a lot of the times people invest way too much up front, and then it's very difficult to get out of that J-curve. Mm. If you limit your downside and you wait until the thing takes and it's successful, I'm, I'm talking about the early days now, when sure, it was taken and, and successful. And your product hasn't been validated yet. And yes, yeah. Once it's validated and once yeah. you see the sales, yeah. obviously, then, then, sell, turn it then raise the capital and up the marketing and all that. But you've got to get the validation in the marketplace. Try and minimize until that date. This whole thing around blitz scaling and blitz, all that. Blitz scaling. Yeah. It's a different model for me. I don't know if I could naturally do that, right? Sure. That fail fast, fail forward kind of mentality. Put yeah. in a lot of effort, a lot yeah. of capital. Yeah. Look, you know, it might work. You might crack it right, but the risks are extremely high. So you get this either you big spend to get to the uplift. But I like the idea of protecting your downside. And then once you see it taking off, then apply massive capital. Then you know it's selling. You know there's acceptance in the marketplace. That's when you really go strong. For sure. 
And Barry, entrepreneurship is hard. If you look at the sector and how the stats reveal how hard it actually is, did you and Adrian experience any real challenges in those early years? Things that really kind of stand out? Was there anything that you went into crisis mode or you tackled some real problems that you can speak to? Sure. The biggest thing for us, from 1994, when the new government came in South Africa, till 2000, we existed on legislation that hadn't changed yet. So it was old apartheid legislation, yes. hadn't been upgraded for a new government, and it was kind of a no-man's land, and regulatory oversight was minimal. There was a lot of confusion at that point in time who was regulating so there was a medical schemes regulator, but it was fairly small in nature and there wasn't much changes. And so it was a pretty open time period. However, they were always working on changing the Medical Schemes Act. So the first Medical Schemes Act before 2000, you could risk rate, you could underwrite. It's like a normal insurance environment. Yeah. The ANC government wanted to change all that to make it community rated to make it guaranteed issued. You couldn't underwrite, you couldn't price differentially mm. on risk. And these are things around social solidarity. And that's those are you, important conversations. Those are, yes, for those sure. are important issues. But it was a massive change in the medical schemes environment. From and a it. fairly serious threat to you guys, yes, right? For right. sure. And no one knew how to adapt to the new environment. It's a completely new environment, a completely new medical schemes act that came in in 2000. So did that feel like a sword of Damocles over your head for for that period? I mean, yes, it must have been at that, at that point in time. We only had one business. Yeah, we were completely dependent on this business. It was our life. We had built it up till two thousand, and sure. our entire environment was changing one hundred and eighty degrees, completely, from a normal insurance market to a more social solidarity market. Sure, and it was a complete overhaul on the environment. So we relaunched our company three times in about four or five months. We called it Apollo 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> so we came out with new products. I'll never forget in about October uh, 1999, we launched it to the marketplace. We changed our entire computing systems, everything. And two or three weeks after we had launched and told brokers and clients, everything, the regulator rejected our changes. Completely rejected our changes. Because, I mean, they were trying to work out how does this new medical schemes act. So were we. So it was like September issue, the first one. Then in about November, they rejected it. We relaunched in November of 1999. Complete overall. New products, new systems, Uh new everything. In a matter of two or three months. Then comes beginning of January 2000. They rejected it for a second time. In fact, not only rejected it, they were going to close us down within 14 days they were going to shut down our medical scheme wow and, and uh, do you remember how big your membership was then must have been about 200,000 members okay so it was significant oh, yeah, i mean it was significant a business. proper business yeah we were already listed on the Johannesburg stock exchange mm. how did that feel at that no, I mean, stage were you guys anxious did you were you always watching it, the news i mean everyone was away it was the change of the millennium everyone was away i was the only one back in johannesburg my wife was expecting so <laughs> i was back home <laughs> so yeah this double whammy of stress so i everyone came back we phoned everyone everyone off the holidays 
came back after New Year's. I'll never forget. Everyone came back. So we first got our lawyers to write them in the letter to say, listen, 14 days is not acceptable. Can we give more time to comply? We had this threat of complete overhaul, complete change, and the threat of this, if we don't comply, they're going to yeah. basically shut us down. They gave us more time. And then we worked again on the regulations, re-looking at it, working actually now with the Council for Medical Schemes and going to speak to them, how do we actually do it? And we came up with some ideas and I think were changed our business. So in that month, January mm. of 2000, was the most productive month and seminal month of our business. We changed and we launched it for the third time, beginning of February 2000. Again, changed the products completely, changed our systems completely. And I pulled the company together, pulled yeah. the management team together. We spent days and days debating how to do it. We came up with some phenomenal ideas and products. They lasted for years. And quite frankly, from that day onwards, our business took off. It wow, really what a story. Yeah, That's so amazing. from 200,000, I mean, now today we cover over 3 million. It really just, it was the inflection point. So, so it was of, actually one of our best moments. Okay. Toughest time So there's us. a real lesson. I mean, well, maybe you can speak into the lessons. What, what lessons did you glean from that experience? I mean, that's, that is a proper yeah, so <laughs> existential look, <laughs> threat of note, which is seemingly out of your control to a degree, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, you go through all those emotions of, you sure. know, let's sue them, let's yeah. whatever. Anger, <laughs> Anger and then regret <laughs> and sadness. Is the, what, there's like seven of them or something. Yeah, right? yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. So it pulled the team together. We really had our best sort of thinking. I mean, we still operated very much as an excellent team. I think that's one thing about the management. At did you recognize that at the time when you were going through that? Did you recognize that this is actually a really important time and that you're congealing as a team, that you're really working together well? Yeah. I mean, it was like we were in a room for a month sure. nonstop debating this thing and coming up with new ideas and just mm. thinking the thing through. We had seen through a very tough time. We dealt with it, actively worked on positive solutions. Mm. So any of the next challenges that came along, we thought, you yeah, know, we could deal with it. It gave us confidence to deal with other problems in the future, you mm. know, that we could actually get together and learn from each other, you know, how best to work together to get this thing done. I think it benefited the organization, our value system, yeah. everything. And I think it's helped us and it gave us a confidence that we can accept the problem for what it is and, and deal with it, you know. I mm. think far too often people don't really accept the problem for what it is, you know. Yeah, they run away from it rather than lean into it, right? Yeah. And I guess it's a wonderful lesson, actually. I think the fact that you were able to reframe it at the time and see the challenge as something that could be turned into an opportunity. Look, which, I mean, to be frank, we didn't have a choice and we had to do sure. it. Sure. But I think a lot of people do run away from the challenges. Everybody faces, I think most startups at some point face some kind of existential threat. You know, there's always something around the corner that you don't expect and that just suddenly appears. And it's it's tough. I mean, it's tough no, out there. I, tough. I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and sometimes it's heartbreaking, to be frank. I mean, sometimes there's proper full-on business interruption. But I guess if you get through that, then uh, you can become a stronger team and you can feel more confident and you can face future challenges with more more confidence yeah, absolutely no doubt so i, I want to talk to the character then of of an entrepreneur and, and what it takes to face those challenges so i actually met adrian some time ago at an endeavor 
networking thing. I was very briefly part of that Endeavor program that they had, and then I dropped out because it was way too hard, and I was way too busy with my business. And uh, I just have this very prevalent uh, understanding of Adrian as being an extremely intelligent guy. And both of you are, are clearly very smart people. If we look at entrepreneurs as a whole, I mean, we clearly need entrepreneurs in this country. What are the characteristics that make up a successful entrepreneur? So, I mean, and I guess, sorry, a sub question would be, should everyone be a, it's a loaded question. Should anyone be a, an entrepreneur? I suppose the, the evolution of discovery is a, it's a team effort, you know, and I think a lot of the people within the company bring different aspects and different characteristics to the party. Some are conservative, some are more aggressive. Some people are unbelievable, add so much value to the company. It's not really one individual. I think there are a lot of people that add flavor to it, their sure. business. And what I found satisfying is in, in the intelligence of the group, for the group to debate. And I think that's what is so good. I mean, you had to come to one of our executive committee meetings. You won't believe the level of debate. It just carries on debate. Okay. I mean, you could, you could, you could so carry like on. Yes, men. Yes, yes, people in the around the table. Everybody's no, putting their got a proper opinion. Yeah, on and it's. I think an open, honest debate. I think that's that's been very, very healthy. Look, I mean, different entrepreneurs work differently. I like the fact that I'm part of a, a grouping of individuals. I get different ideas. My ideas can be way out of pulled back. I pull some people forward. You know what I'm saying? It's like. Yeah, it's it, it really has worked well, and I think we have supported each other, and it's it's been a a great great experience for all of us. And just myself and Adrian, if you just take those two individuals, I mean, we have very very different characteristics. I mean, Adrian is a lot more intellectual, you know, a lot he thinks through things a lot more, and decision making is more of a, sure. a science and an art. I'm way more gut feel, move quickly. That kind of thing. And I think together we make a very, very strong team. Yeah. And that, we made a very strong team in the early That's days. That's a classic well. co-founder team, actually. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, and it's worked well. I mean, sure. I've worked with him for over 33, 34 <laughs> years. It's been a long time. It's like a marriage. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And I think we know each other very well. And, you know, the relationship ebbs and flows. But we've had a very, very good relationship over sure. many, many years. And I think part of the success is part of that relationship. It's been a very good relationship. And I think we bring different things, as do Many other people within the company. I mean, we've got some very strong, very smart, world-class people in the company. It's a company today of, you know, 12,000 people. Yeah. You asked about, you know, can anyone be an entrepreneur? And I mean, a lot of people want to be out there on their own and build stuff on their own, etc. But a lot of time, I think what is underrated are entrepreneurs. Do you think it's important to have a co-founder? I mean, to most entrepreneurs, I love that you said you, you complement each other's strengths. Do you think that's a vital part of a healthy startup, a healthy business? Uh, certainly for what we try to do, you know, build a big, uh, substantial business. I think it takes many people to do that. Sure. But I think it's very important to get input from different people. I don't think you can survive and do it on your own, completely on your own. For us, the Ram Merchant Bank Management, uh, Larry Dippinor, Paul Harris, G.T. Ferreira, those three guys, specifically Larry, who was our chairman for 15 years. Okay. I really, he was a role model for us, unbelievable, one of the best business people I know. We learned so much from him, the way he handled business, the board meetings, his thinking. He was always you know, focused on the business case. We learned so much from Larry. 
and sort of the culture at Rare Merchant Bank, I think, mm. has really assisted us in our business. And so and we've had a lot of different role models. I mean, today our chairman is is Mark Tucker, someone we've worked with for okay. many years. He's also the chairman of HSBC. Yes. And again, I mean, I think we'll work exceptionally well with him. So is Laurie like a mentor to you guys, to, oh, in a absolutely. sense? Absolutely. Okay. And how important do you think having mentors is for entrepreneurs? Exceedingly important. You're going into environments, you haven't got the experience, you're naive, you bring in someone who's seen it and done it, can add the value, help you think through the decision-making, yeah. question your decisions, etc. I think it is exceedingly important. You know, you could go the wrong way. Quite easily, and I think you know, having people there that can add value, just check the decisions. You know, I think. Did you have more than one mentor? Did you have a variety of different people who gave you advice in different sectors in those early days? I mean, when so you yes, started? I mean, our second chairman was Monty Hilkovitz. He was actually a person we had known from Liberty Life days. Okay. He assisted us. His knowledge about insurance, life insurance, and international markets was very, very important for us. I mean, they've been. Really, some really excellent people along the way. We went to America uh, for our first time when we started mm-hmm. out in America. We had some people that assisted us in that market. I think Adrian's very strong on building up a very good network. That mm-hmm. is, he's brilliant at getting the right people to assist us, and he's done exceptionally well with that. So every market we've gone to, I mean, last week I was at our business in the UK with a the board. They're very strong that gave a lot of input mm. into our organization. I think those things are invaluable. Mm. You need assistance. I mean, you need people to help you out. And we need that sort of culture, right, in the ecosystem of South Africa. What would your perception be of the current entrepreneur ecosystem? Do you think that there is enough of that? What you had was quite exceptional. To have somebody like Laurie giving you that advice at that level in the early days is phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, that that's like gold, right? Yeah. We don't all have that opportunity, you know, to have that kind of high-level input. Do you think that's critical to an ecosystem to create? Because we are woefully short in terms of our competitiveness at an entrepreneurial level if you compare us to, you know, similar GDPs around the world. How do you see that in terms of what you've observed working with, with the, the entrepreneurs that you work with? So, I mean, it's a bit of a yes and no answer. I've seen some people give back a lot and work with new starts. I've spoken to like Paul Harris and I've seen him work on you know, his current investment in rain. I mean, these guys, a lot of them out of the ramage and being stable, out of the uh, you know, other businesses. I've seen guys give back and people give back to the market. Well, I agree with you, it's not sufficient. I feel people move out of the business environment a little bit too soon in South Africa. If you go to America today, you see people into the 70s. It's this virtuous circle, right? And yeah. it's, it's just continually giving back and feeding back into the ecosystem. Correct. I don't think you get that. In the U.S., I don't think people like retire and they're out. You don't get that. People are always involved. You get the sense that people give back a lot more in the U.S. Yes. I mean, you, you find a lot more yeah. people. I mean, like angels and yes, mentors. Sure. I think there's a lot more of that in the U.S. I don't think sufficiently. I think there is an element of it in South Africa. It's just not at the level mm. it should be. Mm. I don't think it's zero. I think there are people that do work great work and there are organizations that do that. But we should encourage it more. People step out of formal environment too soon and they need to get back in and just help out yeah. younger entrepreneurs. And step back into that ecosystem, which you see, you know, around the world, 
in Berlin, in Stockholm, in Tel Aviv, in you know Shoreditch, in London now, Silicon Valley, and so on, and Estonia now. There's so many great examples of these hubs where successful entrepreneurs are giving back not just money, but also the experience yeah. and their insights and perspective to the younger entrepreneurs, which is invaluable. And I agree with you. That's that's definitely what we need. It's not where it should be. Yeah. I want to speak just quickly about culture in terms of you encourage with the people around the table the debate and people with opinions and to be able to express those opinions freely was that something that was from the early days? Did you intentionally set that kind of culture? How did you define your culture? Was was it an intentional thing or did it just emerge organically? It kind of emerged organically from who we were and how we ran the business. But we did sit down ultimately and write it down and, and codify it. Because we thought it was important that we have a value system. With such a large company... You can't control yeah. what goes on. You don't know you what goes on. You can't speak to everybody. You can't speak to everyone, sure. influence everyone. So you have to have some value system which we have put in place. Okay. Uh, and it basically was just codifying what we were about and what we believed in. Mm. Like everyone's opinion does count and the business case should prevail and you know, all these kinds of ideas. So we have a leadership charter that goes through it and a list of values that we've gotten. We, I think we communicate it fairly frequently. We try and get it top of mind. That's how we run our business. You know, the people have got to be innovative and dazzling service. Sure. So we've got a whole range of things that we that, that you believe in. That right? we strongly believe in. Fundamental to the the core and the heart of the business. Correct. And we expect people that come into the organisation to follow those set of values. So it's those kinds of things that I think we want to permeate within the business, and it's, mm-hmm. it's a sum of our collective. Being who we are. Sure. And once I suppose, once you've articulated those beliefs, then it'll attract others with like-minded beliefs, right? True. So thus you grow. Yeah. In the early days, was there that sort of culture or was it just scrappy and messy? I mean, did you feel that there was a good company culture in the beginning? Yeah, well, and I guess, sorry, a sub-question to that was how important is culture to a successful business? Oh, exceedingly important, right? Yeah. You've got to have the right way of running the business ethically and you know, sure. passion and all these types of things. Look, we came out of a formal corporate environment. We worked at Liberty Life. It was a corporate environment. We started. We always acted like we were a corporate. You know, it's not like we walked in one day and we were small-time entrepreneurs. We acted like, <laughs> like okay. a large organization. Okay. You're bullish from the start. <laughs> bullish from the start. Cocky young <laughs> entrepreneurs. Correct. We took it seriously and that's because we wanted to build this iconic sure, business. You, we were punched above your work right from the start, which is amazing. I, you know. So, yes. Yeah, so would have embarrassing if you failed, but still, you know. Exactly. That's certainly not the case. <laughs> so, but I suppose we had learned it from our background. You know, we had learned at Liberty how it worked and we mm. saw a very successful business grow and. Certainly. So we just brought that and that's what the way we want to create it. So we, Sort of went straight into it, a board, uh, executive committee meetings. There were minutes and, and agendas, and, you know, we ran it properly day one. Was it fun? Ah, oh, it's been <laughs> an absolute blast. I've had uh, the best of times. That's amazing. <laughs> and what's wonderful, it seems like that culture has continued. I mean, it feels like it's still that same entrepreneurial, innovative, but yet respectful and professional culture now, right? Yes. That's the mix I like, that we're not messing around. It's a proper business. We run it properly, ethically, with all the right governance. That's still innovative and exciting and pushing forward. And debate and allowing everyone to have their say and business case prevails. And 
that's what interests me. Mm. I don't want, I don't like this idea where you, you walk into a room and the person in charge thinks they know everything and it's the best idea should win. Yeah. You should debate everything and say, wow, that idea makes sense. Let's pursue that. I enjoy it and I enjoy interacting with my colleagues. I really do. I enjoy coming to work and that interaction is what gives me pleasure in life. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? People, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's the enjoyment and actually trying to solve these problems. I don't see it as a challenge and etc. I see it as something that I love doing. That I want to try and solve these problems. And some of these problems are intractable. I mean, because we got some really tough issues to deal with. Sure. But I love the idea of trying to find ways through it. Mm, the problem solving. We're going into this era now, this so-called fourth industrial revolution, and everything is changing and there's disruption from everywhere. And, you know, the scale, scope, and velocity of change is like nothing we've ever seen before. What does discovery look like in the future? Can you give us a glimpse of, of what's cooking? I mean, it has changed quite a bit. You're quite right. That it's become a lot more focused around systems and platforms, mobile interaction. And business has, there's no doubt, over the last yeah. 10, 15 years, it's changed dramatically. That You know, everything is more mobile and changing more quickly. And you could get competition now, from different fields, you never knew where from the company From a garage startup, right? Garage startup or from a massive platform around the world. Obviously, all that change does create opportunities. Sure. And that's number one. That's on the positive side. But also, I mean, I think we need now to create different skill sets. You know, you've got to know how to compete in the new environment. I mean, if you're still running an old mainframe system, you're not, you're not mobile. You know, don't have a application where people want to use and there's no social media you're out of the game you've got to be on twitter and facebook i've got to attract my kids my kids have got to want to interact with our business not the new generation not the older generation yeah and i think that's the the secret now i think it's changed dramatically and i think it's very exciting it's become a lot more consumer centric and that's creating a lot of opportunities for us i want to talk to some salient lessons that we can leave behind for our audience in terms of some of the top things that you would advise young entrepreneurs who are starting out in this environment, which is hectic and crazy and challenging, but also exciting and awesome in terms of just the the sheer amount of opportunities to start businesses and disrupt and innovate and, and change the world. What do you advise these young Barry's and Adrian's of today. First of all, uh, they got to see it as exciting and something that they want to do and fun and etc. That's got kind of a passion that they've got to create something. So this passion is important. It's also the right attitude that you're doing this for life. This is your passion. Mm-hmm. This is, so it's so a long-term important. commitment. Thirdly, um, whilst you can have a very high and lofty vision, your targets and goals and what you want to achieve have got to be realistic. As I said, we want to create this iconic business and we still do want to have create this iconic international business. But actually, you got to build it. Your short-term targets are very realistic. I mean, mm. you got to be able to achieve. you got to build off success. I'm a real big believer in building off success and then scaling, you know, getting a repeatable model. you got to be able to sell your concept properly. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people and I sit back, okay, 
I don't get it, right? I really don't. <laughs> I just don't get it. I mean, I don't. Think yeah, in terms of a business idea, yeah, or, okay. I yeah. just don't get this idea. I don't know who's bought this. They haven't sold it to anyone, I'm sure, because <laughs> I can't see it, you know. Maybe I'm just mad, you know. Maybe they're finding those cracks. I can't see, you know what I'm saying. they got to go out there and sell. You know, they've got to yeah. go out and convince someone who is going to pay them cash to buy their idea. You've got to do that. At some mm. point in time, you actually got to get that to that point where it's a saleable product and saleable commodity. You know, you can have many ideas and unfortunately spend a lifetime on it, spend a significant amount of cash on it. But you actually, if you can sell, get the product right, spend your time honing your product mm. and get on the road and sell it. The entrepreneur, get out there and actually do the hard yards of actually selling it. Stuff we did in the early days. Yeah. You actually got to be on the road. Hit the bricks, yeah. Yeah, you got to be in the, at the coal face. You got to do that. And you got to get the feedback immediately. Listen, there's, there's an issue with the product. There's not working. That's not working. And change the product. Hone your product. And I think fall in love with the process. Process of trying to resolve but and the solve. Process the process as opposed to the product. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Also, I think everything about it, you got to be enjoying, right? So it's the product, but you've got to be able to sell it and sure. get feedback, that feedback loop and change it. What, what I guess I'm, I'm extracting from that is is don't fall in love with the product so much that you're not willing to change it and take feedback. Because I see that quite a bit with entrepreneurs, that they will not take negative criticism of this amazing idea, you know. They'd rather walk out and slam the door yeah, and, and then go think, find validation somewhere else, you know. For me, they're going to make sales with people they're going to pay to buy, you know, pay actually sure. hard cash. I was with some entrepreneurs last night. You could see with them that they had the tough times in the early days, but they also started making sales. And now today, international successes, amazing businesses really have done exceptionally well, kind of under the radar. But again, they went through the same thing. They waited, 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 sold. It was difficult for them to sell, made the sales. Yeah. And then sort of scaled and then invested and then got the thing going, you know. It's amazing to me that this thing of sales keeps coming up in conversations. And it's it's a skill that is so vital. And with all the changes that the fourth industrial revolution is bringing about and all this technology hype and so on, you're always going to need to sell. There's always going to be this human connection that you've got to convince another human to buy your product and transact with their I mean, even, cold hard cash. Yeah, even, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys building apps and that. I mean, how they distribute the apps and sell the apps. And, sure, there's a lot of automation and so on. Yeah, but, but, but at some point. They've got to sell. They've they got to sell. If they yeah. get 100 people that are keen on it, mm. interested, mm. And, mm. And, and you know, I mean, you've seen ideas. You see the idea and you think, wow, yeah. that is amazing. Thank you, Barry. This has been an amazing, amazing session. And it's been fascinating to hear about the early days and the process and how you guys have built up this amazing company. And congratulations on the success. And uh, long may it continue. Fred, I appreciate it. It's great to talk about our business. I mean, I'm passionate about it. And uh, I just want to thank you for having me on your show. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you loved this podcast, do let us know via social media, tag at discovery underscore essay, and please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more shows on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts.